Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, LNG Dreams. Will the province's LNG aspirations doom BC's emission reduction goals? And drug treatment or harm reduction? Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev joins us to discuss his plan to tackle the opioid epidemic. And with FIFA announcing it's expanding its 2026 World Cup tournament, will Vancouver host even more games at BC Place? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. A $3 billion floating liquefied natural gas plant that the Heisler First Nation planned to build in Kitimat got the green light from the provincial government today. The project is being designed as a floating LNG terminal, uh, which uh, w- basically means it has a relatively small land footprint and will be largely powered by clean hydroelectricity. Once built, the project will require one LNG carrier moving up and down the Douglas Channel every 7 to 10 days uh, in the Pacific Northwest. Now, you, of course, have heard of the LNG Canada project. That project uh, is being built right now, and it is budgeted for $36 billion. That's a much larger project. But nevertheless, this is a historic approval today that allows for the province to export its natural gas to Asia and other parts of the world. Now, Premier David Eby spoke on the issue about 90 minutes ago. Uh, They not only uh, focused on this announcement, but the government also unveiled new measures uh, that are designed to cut down on industry emissions and to help the province reach its climate targets. Take a listen. Following engagement with First Nations workers, industry, and stakeholders, we will bring in an emissions cap for the oil and gas industry. This provides predictability and strong measures to align efforts to make sure we hit our targets. We will require all newly proposed LNG facilities in or entering the environmental assessment process to have a credible plan to reach net zero emissions by 2030. We will establish a clean energy and major projects office. This will help ensure BC is a leader in the global clean energy future by expediting approvals for clean major projects while maintaining our high standards. Finally, we'll create a BC Hydro Task Force to electrify the provincial economy. Our intention is to leverage our clean electricity to supercharge BC's economy and open new opportunities for business and job growth in the future. Uh, that was Premier Eby speaking about uh, 90 minutes ago on a very important and historic day. Joining me now uh, is an individual who is driving his community towards this day today, the approval of the Cedar LNG project. He is the former chief counsellor of the High Slough First Nation, presently is the BC Liberal MLA for Skeena. Uh, that is, of course, Ellis Ross. Ellis, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much, Jess. Good to be here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, beyond being the MLA for the area, uh, I know you were driving uh, just the, your community's uh, participation, involvement in LNG from a very long time, probably a good 10 years now, if not even longer than that. What's this mean to you uh, beyond your scope as an MLA, but just this announcement today? Well, that, that took up uh, most of my life from 2004 to 2017. Uh, whether it be Chevron's KLNG project or LNG Canada's project or the Heisla Cedar, that was all under the, the chief and council days when I was there. In fact, I resigned as chief counselor to be in the Liberal MLA to actually get LNG as an industry off the ground province-wide. Mm-hmm. And so there, there's nothing I really don't know about Cedar or LNG Canada or Chevron for that matter. Did you... Um uh, have days where you just said, is this worth it? Uh, it and say, look, there's got to be other ways of doing things. Uh, there must have been incredibly frustrating days because it's all well and good to, for you and I to talk today. But as you said, you, this was in the early odds where you were just starting out this this education to get this. But there must have been some really frustrating days for you. Oh, without a doubt. And in fact, as chief counselor, I was like 
three years in my term, I was considering resigning. But what kept me going was the fact that, look, this is going to make BC stronger. It's going to uplift an entire generation of First Nations out of poverty, which you already proved before that. Uh, but the only missing piece for me was I didn't understand the amount of politics around LNG until I got to Victoria. And now understanding that LNG has been a political football, I mean, we're just rehashing media releases from 2018, basically, in terms of the climate action plan. Mm-hmm. But uh, finally, I hope that the politics are lining up with the reality now in terms of oil and gas. What, what I found interesting today, we heard from Premier Eby, this is an announcement for an LNG project, an historic project, not only because it's it's gotten past the finish line, it is led by First Nations community, your community, the Heisla First Nation, but the government also went out of its way to announce uh, today's uh, as, uh, you know, a, a new energy action framework. And so much of the conversation was built around that rather than the announcement itself. It's almost as if the NDP were <laughs> looking for political conversation just to, just to get to the point where they said yes. Yeah, and that's what they they basically pulled out the same press release from 2018, and they didn't achieve those climate action targets back then. I mean, just just saying stuff like that really doesn't change anything. And I, I think the the one missing piece that Premier Ibi missed out was the world has changed. Mm-hmm. The geopolitics right now, especially in Europe, is about energy, mm-hmm. and Germany paid the price for that and not understanding what energy really means in today's context. But like I say, that that, that was just uh, a pulled out, rehashed media release from two, three years ago in it, terms of the climate action plan. I was watching it live on television and that same thing was going through my head. I go, why does this sound so familiar <laughs> as I was listening to it? And, and, and full disclosure, I think most of you know I used to work for the LNG industry, so I, there is some knowledge and, and hope some institutional knowledge in history there as well. Uh, but, but do you think we can do both though? I mean, the reality is there there are greater emissions when you are still extracting uh, LNG. Yes, you can electrify it, and this is what the the province wants to do, and I get that. But is can you do both in regards to driving forward when it comes to the energy transition and wanting to go green and less emissions, at the same time wanting to get full uh, value for those natural resources that you have that many nations around the globe, particularly 60% of humanity called Asia, wants? You know, if you're going to do this, then you got to get rid of the rhetoric and you got to basically put BC Hydro on steroids if you want to upgrade the infrastructure from Prince George to Kitimat. Mm-hmm. And for as long as I can remember, we've been having this conversation in BC and now it's questionable whether or not they'll upgrade the infrastructure in time for LNG Canada Phase 2 or in time for Cedar LNG. I mean, at some point, you know, you got to drop the politics and actually start talking about reality. And I don't know about this upgrade in terms of BC Hydro making it time for these LNG projects, but who's going to pay for it, example? Mm-hmm. And are you going to start the consultation with First Nations from all along that route? Are you going to start that all over again? Mm-hmm. These are not easy questions and not easy answers. Well, I mean, this conversation and, and what you were mentioning there, Ellis, is basically you've got to add, move electricity from uh, to your part of the province. Kitimat, you have, of course, electricity, but you need a lot more of it uh, to electrify and to power these large LNG projects, even the small ones. Um, but this conversation has been going on for 10, 12, 13 years in regards to a uh, line. At one point, I heard the cost of something like that would probably be, you know, half a billion to a billion dollars. But who who knows what the cost is now because nothing's been nothing's been built at this particular point. Um, do you think 
we, in regards to the LNG industry itself, we started with zero. The U.S. started with zero. They are significantly ahead of us to the point I think they're number one in the world or number two for sure, but may have passed Qatar. Do you think we've missed the missed the whole LNG train at the end of the day? Yes, today the LNG project, Cedar LNG, was approved, and that's a, a win for your community. But in regards to large-scale projects, uh, you know, meeting the needs of Asia and potentially even Europe uh, now, as you were saying, have we not just missed the boat on this? Well, you know, the United States has been kicking our butt, even though they freaking started after us. But you know what? LNG Canada is not out of the woods. Cedar LNG is not out of the woods. They've actually got to get all the permits underneath that environmental certificate. And right now, the permitting and the regulatory process for the B.C. government is a gong show. You can't get them. It, 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 everything about the B.C. government is delayed, overdue. And in terms of a permit or an environmental certificate, in BC, it costs millions and millions of dollars. Why this is so important for Heisler is because they were actually waiting for this approval to start working on the permits so they can actually go after offtake agreements in Asia. Mm-hmm. And th- this is the second thing I'll be watching out for because I understand the permitting process. I'll be watching out to see if, if BC cleans up its act mm-hmm. and gets these permits out in an efficient manner to actually be part of the global energy scheme. Ellis, uh, lots to talk about on this file. I want to thank you for your time today. We'll definitely have you back on uh, uh, to talk about the LNG file. There's so many different uh, avenues to, to, to discuss. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks a lot, Jess. Let's talk about the issue of um, the opioid epidemic uh, in our country. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev was uh, in Vancouver today, and he said that if he became prime minister, he would sue pharmaceutical companies to fund drug treatment. He says that to pay for that, he would launch a $44 billion lawsuit against the pharmaceutical companies that manufacture the prescription drugs that many users are addicted to. Uh, Mr. Polyev, of course, is leader of the Conservative Party of Canada and, of course, the leader of the official opposition, and he joins us now. Now, Mr. Polyev, thank you for your time today. Great to be with you, Mr. Johal. Uh, first and foremost, let's touch on this issue of the lawsuit. Why is this a priority for you? Uh, I think globally, uh, so far, $54 billion have been paid out by pharmaceutical companies. Uh, do you think you're going to be able to make enough money to pay for some of these uh, treatment centers that you're talking about? Yes, we should be able to pay for all of it uh, by suing the big pharma corporations who caused the crisis in the first place. They flooded North America with Oxycontin and other opioids. They promised the medical systems in both Canada and the U.S. that these drugs were safe and non-addictive. Both of those things were lies, and they knew they were lying. They not only only that, but McKinsey, uh, Justin Trudeau's favorite consulting firm, uh, did uh, advisory work where they said... Uh, that there should be bonuses for distributors who who uh, caused overdoses to occur. So people got hooked on these opioids. They then moved up the ladder of severity to fentanyl. That has led to 30,000 Canadians losing their lives, another 30,000 hospitalized, and tens of billions of dollars in costs to our health care our criminal justice system, our border security, our indigenous programs, a poly of government will sue Big Pharma, recover these funds, and use the money 
to pay for the desperately needed recovery and treatment programs that will save the lives of our brothers and sisters. Uh, your focus has been on tr- uh, treatment. Uh, you've mentioned that many, many times on this show and many other uh, programs and publicly as well. Do you think there's any room for harm reduction as well, or do you think that's just the wrong route to take? Well, harm reduction is a, like, you know, everybody agrees with the principle of reducing all forms of harm. I'm wearing a seatbelt right now because I want to reduce the harm of a possible car accident. That doesn't mean I should encourage the car to slam into another vehicle. Um, and by the Trudeau and NDP approach of flooding our streets with more drugs, uh, paying taxpayer money to supply those drugs, has now proven to be a disaster. It has led to a massive increase in overdoses. There's been a 300% increase in overdose deaths under Justin Trudeau. And even since BC declared a public health emergency on opioids, the number of overdoses has more than doubled, all the while these so-called safe supply programs have been expanded. So they have not worked. Mm -hmm. All they're doing, actually, we're seeing the stories here in BC, The users are getting the taxpayer-funded hydromorphine. They're ripping off the labels, selling it to kids, taking the profits to buy more powerful fentanyl. Then they're overdosing and dying. Those kids are using those uh, uh, taxpayer-funded drugs to get addicted to opioids, and then they're graduating up to, to fentanyl and dying. That's not the answer, nor is legalizing fentanyl, heroin, and crack, as the Liberals and NDP want to do, the opposite. I will ban crack, heroin, Uh, fentanyl, illicit fentanyl and other drugs, and I'll put all of the resources into recovery so that people can bring home a drug-free life. Now, this region, as you know very well, and you've articulated very well there, is known for providing a safe supply of drugs to some users and decriminalizing small amounts of certain illicit substances. Public health officials have been supportive of that, and so have police. Do you think they are wrong? Well, I I, I would disagree with the characterization that police are on side with this. The police that I talk to are strongly against it because they know that it has made Vancouver more dangerous. Uh, Vancouver is basically, in practice, had decriminalized drugs for about six or seven years since they stopped prosecuting those offenses. And the results are plain to the eye. Go to Hastings Street where people lie face down on the pavement we're, we're losing six people a day in, in British Columbia, where uh, overdoses have increased by 300% under Justin Trudeau. It's not working. We need to ban heroin, mm-hmm. uh, um, illicit fentanyl, crack, cocaine, stop providing taxpayer-funded drugs, and instead provide the treatment that will save the lives of our people. Uh, in regards to the current issue of supervised consumption site, uh, where users can bring drugs to inject or inhale uh, under the watch of staff, uh, do you support that present system? My, I would put all of the resources into to recovery and treatment. Um, at the end of the day... So would you su- we're, shut we're those consumption going, sites down then? I would redirect the dollars to recovery and treatment. Uh, I think that the right way to go is to get people off drugs, not to perpetuate addiction. And uh, this is the approach that they're taking in Alberta. They've doubled the number of treatment beds from 4,000 to 8,000, and they're bringing the overdose rate down. By contrast, the approach that the federal liberals support and the NDP implement here in B.C. is doing the opposite. Doesn't work. Let's get people off drugs, 
bring home a drug-free life. Yesterday, I had the Attorney General of British Columbia on this show, Nikki Sharma. We were talking about bail condition, particularly uh, because so much of, of this comes from the federal uh, federal government and federal jurisdiction. There has been a push by attorney generals across this country to toughen bail conditions. Uh, shouldn't we be focusing on those types of issues where you have this small group of people who are constantly in and out in a revolving door fashion out of our justice system, many of them addicted to, to drugs as well, vandalizing, uh, uh, you know, retail outlets, small businesses, and threatening uh, many random acts of violence in Vancouver and many other communities as well. Should we not be focusing on on those issues rather than, you know, potentially shutting down consumption sites or even in the case of, uh, you know, providing safe supply of drugs or decriminalizing small amounts of certain drugs, which, as I've said, the police have supported here in this community. Should we not be focusing on those bail conditions, those types of laws that have turned our, our legal system into sort of a revolving door? Well, we have to tackle both. But um, so Justin Trudeau brought in a bail system that allows it's called same day, same day bail, mm-hmm. uh, a violent repeat offender who's been convicted dozens of times of crimes, gets arrested in downtown Vancouver, and he laughs at the police officer because he knows that by noon on the same day, he'll be out on bail doing more crime in Vancouver. The same 40 offenders mm-hmm. were arrested six thousand times according to the bc union of mayors that's 150 arrests per person per year so it's a very small number of repeat violent offenders that do all the crime that's why trudeau and the ndp are wrong to allow these repeat offenders back out onto the street again and again so polyf government will repeal the broken liberal bail system and replace it with a rule that says if you are a repeat violent offender with a long rap sheet you're newly arrested, you stay behind bars until your trial is done and your sentence is complete. Mr. Paul, you've always enjoyed the conversation with you. I know you're short on time today. Look forward to having you in the studio soon for an extended conversation. Thanks for your time today. Thank you very much. Let's bring it home. Now, the Jazz Joe Hall Show continues on 980 CKNW. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, Canada's biggest music awards, the Junos, were presented in Edmonton last night. Among the many legendary Canadian icons uh, that performed, uh, there was a new artist, Indo-Canadian singer A.P. Dillon, uh, rocked the stage at the awards. His music is a fusion of traditional Punjabi music, pop, hip-hop, and R&B. Uh, Mr. Dillon was the first ever Punjabi act to perform at the Junos. Uh, last year, Mr. Dillon performed before 13,000 people uh, at Rogers Arena. It is a, an amazing story. And cons- considering Mr. Dillon left his native India just eight years ago to pursue a career in music, as he said, he arrived on our shores with just two suitcases uh, in hand. Uh, now, he isn't the first um, artist to, to uh, sell lots of seats over there at Rogers Arena. Last June, another South Asian artist, Diljit Dasanjh, made history when he became the first Indian artist to perform at Rogers Arena. Mr. Dasanjh sold out the venue's nearly 18,000 seats. Uh, Diljit Dasanjh will also be performing at this year's Coachella Festival. Whether it's uh, Mr. Dillon's uh, performance last night or uh, uh, him performing at Rogers Arena or Mr. Dasanjh, both of these moments are called cultural inflection points for Vancouver's large South Asian community, and that continues to grow. Uh, Mr. Dillon uh, last night spoke to press about his journey. Uh, Take a listen. 
In 2015, I moved here with two suitcases and one dream. And that was just to do something that can like, inspire people back home and the immigrants that are coming to this country like with the same hope that I had when I moved here. So I'm really excited to perform here and I'm happy that finally this brown skin is getting recognized. Joining us now to talk about uh, Mr. Dylan and uh, the continued rise of a South Asian artists, particularly Punjabi artists, uh, is DJ Reminis. He's a Punjabi music DJ, podcaster, and media personality. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Jess, for having me. Uh, first of all, your thoughts on last night and, and Mr. Dylan's performance and just the fact that he was present at such an event. Man, huge moment, honestly. It was absolutely fantastic, not just only for, you know, South Asians that have to be like myself, Canadians, but for Canadians all over, you know, being able to showcase our music in a big platform like that from both sides was fantastic, mm-hmm. honestly. Uh, why do you think Mr. Dillon is popular? What, what about his music uh, has resonated uh, with uh, this generation of South Asians? You know, he's a perfect example of taking, you know, traditional Punjabi lyrics, the way he spun it, the way his swagger is, the way he sang it with music that everybody listens to on a day-to-day basis, blend them together, put out a package, which so many can relate to, whether or not you speak the native language or not. It's the perfect blend. And, you know, his numbers and records show it, and last night he proved it. Mm -hmm. I I guess a lot of it, in many ways, his music is what is very similar to what a lot of his audience goes through. And what I mean by that is living in two different worlds. You, you've talked about uh, being, uh, you know, South Asian or Indian heritage at the same time living in a Western world in Canada, being raised here. At the same time, his music, which relies on very, uh, as you say, lyrics and mindset from Punjab and, and Punjabi music, but yet fusing uh, hip hop and pop and R&B uh, with that music. It, it's a it's a perfect sort of blend, like I said, because you know it's hard enough as it is for you know immigrants to come fit in, but they they were able to take their homegrown talents, bring it to Canada, fuse it with what I would say is sort of Canadian music, and put it together and give it to everybody to listen to. And you know naturally people are going to gravitate towards it because it's so familiar to them. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nothing out of bounds. It just sounds just like what they hear normally on radio, except you know they may not understand the words. But that's the beauty of music, right? It's that universal language of, like, love and peace. You know, you, how many times have you heard a record where you never really understood the words, like Latin music, whatever have you, but you still listen to the music? Mm-hmm. Uh, I also mentioned Dildi Dussange uh, selling out uh, Rogers Arena last year, 18,000 people. Uh, is this just a case of the rise and growth of the South Asian community, which is still the you know, largest immigrant group uh, in this province? Uh, or is this something deeper and wider culturally that you're seeing? I think it's a, I think you're right. It's, you know, obviously the South Asian based community, we've grown over the years. Now I've been involved in the music scene here for since the early eighties. And I can tell you the growth every year has been absolutely fantastic. But when you have a superstar like Diljeet, you know, who's cross borders making, you know, music with like so many different artists from, you know, Tory Lanes to whoever it may be. Um, that also helps as well. And now with, Bollywood showcasing our music, you know, um, Hollywood showcasing our music. It just adds to that aura that people want to hear what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you speak to young people today, uh, do the likes of A.P. Dylan, Dildi Dissandra, are those the artists they talk about or, or are there more homegrown uh, artists here that perhaps yet have not received the accolades or the, the attention? 
when we when we talk about Punjabi music today or South Asian music today, those two are the top one and two every single time. You're looking at two of the biggest international superstars that we have currently. Mm-hmm. No doubt. Um, how do these artists um, make money? I mean, I'm talking specifically South Asian artists. Is you know, there's obviously it's there's no there's not the record sales anymore that we talk about or CD sales. This is about streaming. Uh, but is most of what they do in regards to making a living and building that brand and building a deeper connection with fans? Does it still come come down to touring? I think so, hundred um, percent. Most of the time, traditionally. You make music, sign with a label, you get some sort of advance, and you're kind of done. What people like Bill Deeds have done and what AP Dillon have done, they've kept everything to themselves. They've kept all their music. You know, they may have signed to a management company that takes care of their day-to-day, but everything is internal. They own their own music, so all the streaming, all the money they get from the concerts all come to them. Mm -hmm. I mean, besides, like, say, like AP Dillon, he might be signed to, you know, management company, he'll get a piece of the pie, Mm -hmm. but... You know, all the streaming, all the millions of streams they get from the music, they're getting all that money. So it's a win-win situation for them. Uh, many years ago, I did a documentary called Road to Bollywood for Global uh, Television. Yes. It was an hour-long documentary focusing on uh, young South Asians who see India through the lens of Indian cinema. And we followed uh, these young people from here uh, who live in Mumbai. And, you know, some will succeed, many won't. It's just the nature of, of the business. Um, in regards to the music side of entertainment, uh, Mr. Dillon is still, uh, you know, born and raised in India and has come to Canada and success here. Mr. Dessange is uh, obviously well known here, but also born and raised in India. Do you see someone born and raised here? And being able to have the same cultural impact in a nation of $1.4 billion. Like, what I'm saying is, can we do it in reverse? I think so. I think, um, I think the, the recipe, if you look at it, was K-pop. The stuff that you know, the Koreans were doing, mm-hmm. that was kind of like the blueprint. I think what you're going to see now is a major shift in you know, the big six record labels, wherever they may be, the powers that be, to focus on homegrown talent and sort of emulate that blueprint. To whether maybe a Canadian South Asian or an Indigenous person or something like you know what I mean. So, mm-hmm. you know that was a recipe in my belief. Like you've seen how big K-pop is; it's massive. Like they're winning Grammy awards. It's just a matter of time before they find that. You know what I say: the Justin Bieber of the South Asian community, or the you know the Beyonce of the X Y Z community, emulate that formula and bring it forward. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of time. We have the talent. It's just waiting to be discovered. Well, it is certainly, watching the Junos last night, certainly a cultural inflection point, that's for sure. GJ uh, Reminis, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. The expanded World Cup in North America got even more supersized. The government, uh, governing body of soccer, FIFA, increased the size of the 2026 tournament for the second time, six years after the first uh, uh, time where they approved a much bigger group stage. What's that mean? Well, FIFA says that uh, for the 2026 World Cup, there'll be 104 games played. Uh, originally, uh, there were 80 games, and of course, those games are spread over the United States uh, Mexico and Canada, the three uh, host countries. And of course, in Canada, the games uh, will be played in Vancouver and Toronto. So we've got an extra 24 uh, games potentially for 2026. What's that mean? Well, maybe there'll be some games here in Vancouver. Well, let's catch up with our good friend, Blake Price, co-host of the Sakaris and Price show. Of course, you can find it at com. Blake, thank you for joining us today. Anytime, Jeff. Uh, first and foremost, uh, if you're a betting man, do you think there might be one or two extra games for Vancouver out of this? 
Uh, I would absolutely bet on that. Yeah, right now it, it looks like there's going to be uh, ten games in Canada under the sorry under the previous formation. That's going to get bumped up to thirteen or fourteen. It appears, mm-hmm. and uh, I would bet that that means eight games in Vancouver, uh, which is uh, a really nice number. I mean, that that's going to change the atmosphere. That's going to make us feel like full legitimate hosts and not sort of a satellite host. Uh, for the for the tournament, it's uh, it's pretty exciting development. Yeah, no, I think that's it's 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 fabulous. And why is FIFA doing this? Well, in large part to and again, we're talking about the soccer here, mm-hmm. the fabulous World Cup that we just watched. Now we all know the politics and the uh, problems that surrounded the Qatar uh, tournament. Nevertheless, but on the pitch, it was really good, and mm-hmm. the best part of it was maybe the final day of competition where everybody's in action uh, is you know, seemingly at the same time. Um, and there's no getting around the drama that unfolds because you don't know what's happening in the other game. So as you know, they're playing within the pool, both games happening at the same time, you know, anything can happen. There's all these permutations and the soccer players just have to go out and play the game not knowing that, hey, a tie gets us in. We can lose and still get in. If we win, do we get in? Uh, and by, you know, how many goals do we need to score? There's, there's so many permutations. And if you had a three-team pool, obviously you can't have everybody playing at once. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a final game that stands alone. And we all know that sports gambling is a big issue these days. not an issue. It's a, it's, a, it's a big activity these days and can be an issue, especially in moments like this where – hey, the most bet-upon sport in all of uh, the world is soccer. And, uh, you know, you also not only do we get better entertainment, but you sidestep the gambling problem uh, and the possibility that anybody could ever be involved in, in, uh, in, you know, throwing a game. If everybody's playing at the same time, there's just too much action for anybody, any one person to control what's happening. I guess also adding these extra teams, and I'm going to assume they're probably going to come from Africa and Asia uh, or the global south, let's say. I mean, 60% of humanity is Asian. I guess it's also to, to, to continue to drive the game and greater participation in some of these markets that are going to be very important uh, and are important uh, for FIFA just in regards to continue to build uh, the sport itself in the game you know the more games is just going to obviously spread uh, spread the the sport around and and uh you know the more games in vancouver reaches uh the pacific rim destinations a little bit better as well it, it's just it's a win-win across the board i think everybody is is going to be very happy especially those people that stuck their neck out a little bit to make sure that vancouver was a host here mm-hmm. um i i think it's uh it's going to have great repercussions and that it, again it's just going to feel like we're legitimate hosts now uh, and you may not be able to answer this question any sense of how they plan to deal with the issue of needing natural ga- uh, uh, grass to play this game and that's what you're going to have to do this with natural grass any sense have you heard anything as to how they plan to do this well, I mean, the engineering behind it, no, nope, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't heard anything about that, and uh, nor would I be able to explain it to you with my uh, education <laughs> background. Um, but they are going to put grass in, in the dome, and they absolutely have the technology now. Um, you know, it, it, they've got very hardy grasses that with artificial light, uh, and there's already a decent amount of natural light that actually does get in through the, through the, uh, the ceiling of, of BC Play Stadium. 
but uh, aided by artificial light. Um, the biggest issue is going to be irrigation and, and what happens with any runoff water from from the uh, from the grass. You can grow it. It's just, you know, what do you do with the water that's involved? I think that's going to be the biggest stumbling block. But I'm not too worried about it. There's uh, been a lot of retrofits uh, for older stadiums around the world. Some have even been permanent. If you want to go down the rabbit hole, gosh, I'm going to put myself on the spot here. It's either a Spanish or a uh, a German stadium has got this has got a, a natural grass that folds away and gets artificially lit underneath like a subfloor so that you could put a boat show in on top of it. It's a permanent natural grass surface that tucks away. And, and can fold away when, when they need to put something else uh, in there. So, you know, dare to dream the impossible dream that that could ever be at BC Play Stadium, and I highly doubt they would do something like that. I think it's going to be uh, a far more uh, permanent-ish or uh, longer-term solution, you know, that'll last maybe a couple of years. I would suspect that the BC Lions and Vancouver Whitecaps probably play a season on grass before it all goes in so that it's a uh, uh, you know, in good shape for the World Cup. I think I saw that YouTube video. I think it was uh, one of the um, the uh, teams there uh, uh, in Spain. You're absolutely right. I saw the yeah. YouTube video. It's fascinating. It just rolls it out, rolls back in. Uh, yeah. And it was great to see. So I'm looking forward to seeing how they're going to deal with that issue. Uh, Blake, thank you so much for your time. Anytime. I know we spent a lot of time talking about the LNG industry today. Of course, the Cedar LNG was approved by the provincial government, a $3 billion project. We had Ellis Ross on the show at uh, the 3 p.m. hour. Let's talk about the Trans Mountain Pipeline. We haven't talked about it in a long time uh, on the show. Now, the original Trans Mountain Pipeline was built in 1953, and it continues to operate today. Uh, and it runs, of course, uh, over 1,100 kilometers, and it carries almost 300,000 barrels of oil per day between Alberta and, of course, to the West Coast. Uh, and it is a pipeline, as I said, built in 1953. Now, it is being twinned presently. Uh, Trans Mountain, it was originally announced by, of course, Kinder Morgan. Now, Trans Mountain was bought by the federal government for $4.5 billion dollars in 2018, after its previous owner, Kinder Morgan Canada, uh, threatened to scrap the pipeline uh, because uh, of the opposition from environmental of environmentalists and uh, the political uncertainty that was there. Now, the federal government bought the pipeline, and since then, the price tag has steadily increased from $7 billion in 2017 to $9.6 billion in 2018. And now we recently learned the cost of the Trans Mountain expansion project has now grown to 30 $0.9 billion, according to the Crown Corporation, behind the pipeline project. Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, the escalating cost is Richard Masson. He's an executive fellow at the University of Calgary School of Public Policy. Mr. Masson, thank you for joining us today. Great to be here. Uh, when you heard this number, $30.9 billion, what was your reaction? Well, it's a shocking number. You know, this pipeline originally uh, estimates were $5 billion. So this is about six times the early estimates. And and the latest increase, you know, from just a year ago is $10 billion. So it, it just says that everything that probably could have slowed and delayed the pipeline has gone that way. Um, there's been so many challenges with weather, the floods, fires, those types of things. Um, it's led to lower labor productivity. There's been more indigenous artifacts um, collected. And, and, you know, just one thing after another that's added to the cost of this this pipeline, and it makes it so expensive. 
compared to what we thought it was going to be in the beginning. Uh, the private sector uh, proponents initially, Kinder Morgan, just based on the number alone, uh, one assumes it was the right decision for them to exit, just in regards to shareholders and responding to shareholders and the budget. Absolutely. From their point of view, they're, they're going to be very happy. Um, the way the contract is set up, there's a number of shippers. There are oil companies who produce oil or refiners who want to use the capacity to get the oil to their refineries. They, they signed a contract, and certain amount of these costs will go to them through higher tolls that they'll pay over the coming 20 years. But many of the costs uh, won't because the deal that Kinder Morgan negotiated when this is a kind of common practice, you want to make sure that the person who's in charge of building the pipeline, who's got control over it, bears a bunch of the risk associated with it in case they're bad managers. And so that would lower their return. And that's the contract that's still in place. Now that the federal government owns the pipeline, it means lower revenue, well, not lower revenue, but lower returns for the federal government that will ultimately result in losses for all of us as taxpayers. Is this, um, you, you've gone through some of the reasons in regards to what has led to this uh, massive increase. Uh, is this to say it's not the government's fault, it's not the way that the project's being managed, it really is outside forces? Or do you think part of it is the fact that we, uh, we've allowed this company that makes pipelines, that has the expertise and hand it over to a public entity. Do you think that's part of what's causing this, or do you really believe that it is supply chains, it's labor issues, it's artifacts that were found along the way? We've had issues of flooding, of course, in British Columbia as well. It's You know, I haven't done any analysis to say one way or the other, so I don't want to really comment on that. But I would say there's lots of examples of projects that have gone over budget. I mean, um, you know, oil projects in Alberta, like I was involved in the Northwest Upgrader. Mm-hmm. It was a $5 billion project that ended up costing $10, $11 billion by the time it was done, so double. Um, you know, the pipeline in, in northern BC to get um, natural gas to the um, coast for the LNG project is, is over budget. Those things have tended to be, you know, 200% increases from, from initial budget. This is a bigger increase. Mm-hmm. Some of that is because it's going through densely populated areas, but a lot of it, it it's hard to say, um, you know, if it would have turned out differently if Kinder Morgan had still been in charge. Um, there was, Initially, when the federal government purchased the project, there was, uh, you know, many comments about the fact that it will get built and then a course the the government would sell the pipeline and we will get our initial return back our initial investment back and, and probably some profit along the way do you see taxpayers making any money on on this at all or is this a case of just writing some of this off and let's just put it down as nation building i think there's two parts we need to understand about this this pipeline is a strategic piece of infrastructure for a lot of reasons for canada you know we're one of the biggest oil deposits in in the world. We're one of the bigger exporters in the world. And right now, the world is still increasing its demand for oil. So before the COVID happened, we were around 99 million barrels a day of demand in the world. It's going to be about 102 million barrels a day this year. Uh, Much of that growth is coming from Asia and developing countries. And so this pipeline provides access for Canada's oil to get to those markets. That's more important now with Russia, you know, and the war in Ukraine and us trying to get off Russian oil. And so we've experienced huge discounts for the oil we produce because we don't have good access to market. And when we have 
discounts on the oil we sell, to, primarily to the United States, those refiners do really well. But it means taxpayers in Canada don't get the corporate income taxes. Um, the owners of the production don't get good revenues and, and royalties are lower. Mm-hmm. So that group of, of um, uh, stakeholders will benefit by having this pipeline, which will mean less discounts for heavy oil in particular. But the, the pipeline itself is not going to turn out to be a good uh, investment because at this price, uh, the revenue is, is, like I said, kind of fixed and there just won't be enough revenue to provide a, a commercial rate of return. There will be losses associated with this when it's sold. Um, I was talking to Ellis Ross, a chief counselor, former chief counselor of the Heisler First Nation, who initially uh, uh, talked about the LNG industry and, and, and bringing in and, and getting involved with the industry. And, and today, of course, we heard of the C- LNG project, $3 billion Cedar LNG project getting approved. Of course, they're also building the LNG Canada project in Heisler territory uh, uh, as well. But one of the things Mr. Ross has talked about is even though it got, the LNG project was approved today, there's still, you know, permitting challenges, significant challenges still before us, uh, as there was for the first LNG project. Add to that our conversation today about um, the Trans Mountain Corp pipeline and, and the challenges there and the costs that have come with it. There's been protests, of course. How do you think the international community views us as a place for investment when it comes to not only natural gas development, but as a country of law and order, where if you go through the process, spend the dollars, go through all the government uh, bureaucracy that you have to go through, go through all the permitting challenges that are there, uh, and even though you get that approval, you are still dealing with opposition. You are still dealing with the fact that this pipeline still had to be sold to the government for it to get done. How do you view our, our ability to get things done, and as a country of law and order and processes, when it comes to our international reputation, based on what this pipeline costs of the pipeline costs here, and of course the LNG industry as well, it's a that's a big question. I would say we, you know, clearly haven't done ourselves a lot of favors. Um, we the process has been fraught for for Trans Mountain. You know, it was the federal government who failed on proper consultation, and we had to go back to the drawing board. Um, so that added some years to the process. So there's been a lot of things like that that, you know, hopefully we've learned from. Yet maybe we haven't because there's a new, you know, regulatory environment in place that we haven't even tested yet to see how it is. So all that provides uncertainty. On the other hand, we have a lot of dialogue and openness in our country. And so we talk about these things. You know, there's a lot of alignment around wanting to achieve net zero. So, um, you know, I just listened to your newscast about how LNG Canada is going to be one of the lowest emitting facilities in the world. I think that's also true with um, um, uh, Cedar. So we need to put that in the context of the global demand for energy. China is continuing to build coal plant after coal plant because they don't have access to reliable LNG. And so in that context, the more that Canada can do with our high regulatory standards and with our commitment to trying to mitigate greenhouse gases through the production and transport of our our energy, the better off the world is going to be. And part of our our whole challenge in this country is to make sure that people understand, you know, what we're doing and how it fits into a global context. A lot of people want to move off hydrocarbons right away. It's just not feasible to do that in the near term. There's, There's not good alternatives. We need to continue to work on electrifying cars. That's going to help to a degree. But that's only part of the challenge because, you know, light-duty vehicles are only part of the the demand. So we have to find a way to transition. We have to find a way to be 
efficient about building things in order to to help the world by delivering you know lower LNG, lower greenhouse gas LNG and, and oil to the world. That's that's how I see it. Mr. Masson, thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.